you today on this first Sunday of Advent as we enter into this new church calendar year we're invited to focus our attention on the second coming of Jesus through the lens of Mark chapter 13 this section of Mark's gospel is known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is teaching his disciples while he's seated on the Mount of Olives. He's overlooking Jerusalem just a few days before his crucifixion, and he's contemplating what is going to happen in the future. And he's responding to a question that the disciples ask him. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Mark chapter 13, and we're going to use this text to help us this morning. Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 1. I'm just going to read a few verses here. As Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will this be? And what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? I can imagine the disciples very confused about what Jesus had been doing in Jerusalem up to this point in the story. He had cleansed the temple. He had scolded and condemned the religious leaders that were working in the temple. The disciples may have felt that Jesus was being a little too harsh with the religious system and with religious leaders. And it seems like they're trying to woo him into saying something positive about the temple with their comment about the size of the stones and the greatness of the building. Josephus, the historian, tells us that some of the stones in the temple were 40 feet long by 18 feet high. They were massive, massive stones. But Jesus' response is shocking. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. The place of worship is going to be destroyed. Disciples were no doubt troubled by this statement, so they sent Peter, Andrew, James, and John, two, two sets of brothers, the inner circle of Jesus' friends, and they asked Jesus privately, when, when is this going to happen? What's going to be the sign that these things are going to take place? Jesus then uses this question to teach them about what will happen in the future. There's, there's three loose sections in this sermon in chapter 13. There's verses 5 to 13. Jesus is describing what will happen mainly to the disciples. In verses 14 to 23, Jesus is describing what will happen in Jerusalem when the temple will be destroyed, which we know happened in 70 AD. And then in verses 24 to 37, Jesus describes what will happen when he returns and he fully ushers in the kingdom of God. This is what we're going to focus on this morning, this last section. Let me make eight observations about Jesus' return. Observation number one, 
the return of Jesus will be personal. Verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming. Jesus borrowed the title Son of Man from the book of Daniel, and he applied it constantly to himself. He said things like, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man must suffer and die. And then here, he's saying the Son of Man will come. We need to be careful not to explain away the promise of Jesus to come again by imagining that what he's referring to is the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost or the coming of God's judgment on Israel in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. No, it is Jesus, the same person who suffered and died and rose to new life, who's coming again. The return of Jesus will be personal. Observation number two, the return of Jesus will be visible. Verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming. This is not a reference to Jesus coming to us now when he knocks on the door of our hearts. When we open the door and he comes in, he does come in through the Holy Spirit, but this is not the coming that he's referring to. We don't see him coming into our hearts when we open ourselves up to him. Neither is this a reference to the secret coming of Jesus to his people when they're dying, when he comes to take them to be with him where he is. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. His return is going to be personal and it's going to be visible. And just as lightning lights up the whole sky, so his return will be evident to all. Observation number three, the return of Jesus will be powerful. Verse 26 again, they will see the coming of the Son of Man coming in clouds with power. What does this mean, coming in clouds with power? Well, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples saw him taken up and a cloud hid him from their sight. Then two angels appeared and asked the disciples, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All throughout scripture, clouds are a symbol for the presence of God. When God came down on Mount Sinai to reveal the law to Moses, he descended in a cloud. When God made the tabernacle his, his dwelling place, it was filled with the glory of his presence as a cloud. And when God led his people through the wilderness into the promised land, he did so in a pillar of cloud. Clouds are a symbol for the presence of the living God. So if Jesus is coming in the clouds, we can be sure that when he returns, the power of God, the, the full presence of God will be with him. His coming is personal, visible, and powerful. Observation number four, the return of Jesus will be glorious. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and glory. In Jesus' first coming, he came in weakness as a baby. He will return as a powerful king. He came in humility. His glory was hidden in his humanity. He will return in majesty, and his glory will be revealed to all. John Stott put it like this. The return of Jesus is altogether beyond our imagination. 
It will be an event of transcendent magnificence and splendor. We shall see him face to face when he comes in power and glory. His coming will be personal, visible, powerful, and glorious. Observation number five, the return of Jesus will be decisive. That is, his arrival will usher in the end of history and the day of judgment. Verse 27, then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. The return of Jesus will be the day of the Lord so often spoken of in the Old Testament. It will be the day of salvation for God's people and the day of judgment for those who reject him. It will be very good news for those who are longing for his return, but it will be very bad news for all of those who want nothing to do with him. So we need to be sure of our relationship with him before he comes. Observation number six, the return of Jesus will be preceded by signs. It will not take his people by surprise, but there will be recognizable signs of his coming. Verse 28 says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branches become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. What are these signs that Jesus is going to return? Well, he mentions them in verse 24. He says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, this may be literal. Uh, there may be some type of cataclysmic disturbance in the physical universe, or it may be figurative, for the language that he's using is borrowed from Isaiah, in which case the prophet was speaking about political and social upheavals in society. Whatever it was, whether it was literal or figurative or both, or whether it is physical or political or both, a time of darkness and chaos will precede the return of Jesus. And in those days, when these signs are made clear, even the most stable frameworks to which we have grown accustomed and take for granted, like the stars in the sky or the structures of our society, these things will crumble and collapse before our very eyes. And when we see these signs, we will know that the return of the king is drawing near. Observation number seven, the return of Jesus will be sudden and unexpected. Although preceded by signs, the final appearing of Jesus will be sudden, dramatic, and will take us all by surprise. Verse 29, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. You know that he is near. So it is possible to know that he's coming when we see these signs. But then look at verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware then, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. 
we do know, but we don't know. It's this tension. How does this knowing and not knowing fit together? Well, we can know when the end is near in the same way that we can tell that there's a change of season or when a woman is about to give birth to a child. It's kind of inevitable. So we should study the signs of the times. We should pay attention to what is going on all around us. But we don't know the exact day or the exact hour when Jesus himself will return. It's going to be a surprise to everybody. Finally, observation number eight, the return of Jesus is motivating. At least it's designed to be. Knowing that our Lord will come again should motivate us to work. Look at verse 33. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. And then Jesus shares another parable in verse 34. He says, it's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. The second coming of Jesus should motivate us to work. When Jesus returns, he intends on finding us working. And he's given us two jobs to do. We are servants responsible for taking care of the master's house, that is, caring for all of creation, caring for other people. And we are doorkeepers, commanded to watch for his return. This is really a description of the Christian life. We are called to work diligently, using the gifts and talents that we have to love and care for others and we are called into a life of contemplation, which is a posture of staying awake to the presence of Jesus, who's always with us by his spirit, and then waiting expectantly for the day when we will see him face to face. When you get a chance, uh, read Pastor Michelle's introduction in this week's parish update. It's very good. She likens the rhythm of the Christian life to that of the ocean's tide. There's a kind of coming in and a going out. I'm quoting her here. She says, just as the waves come in during the tide and then go out during low tide, so we spend time coming in through prayer, reading the Bible, worship, contemplation, and rest to receive from the Lord before going back out to serve him through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. We are called to be servants of the Lord, responsible for taking care of the master's house. And we are called to be doorkeepers, watching, attentive, staying awake for our master's return. The good news is the master will return. And when he does, it will be personal, visible, powerful, glorious, and decisive. It will be preceded by signs. It will be sudden and unexpected, and it's designed to motivate us to work and to watch. Let's pray. Loving Father, 